Thank you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. If you can grab your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. And so if you would go ahead and turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. You can turn to 2 Corinthians 5 in there, and then you can take that Bible home with you. It can be our gift to you here this morning. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 11 and make our way down through verse 15. And as you're turning in your Bibles there, and as we really think about it being family worship today. It is a helpful reminder, reminder for all of us uh, that we are living our lives in front of other people. Uh, that is, maybe we tote them up here to make announcements, or maybe as we are uh, rustling around in the pews, or maybe as we're watching some other people rustle around in the pews just for fun. Uh, it is a reminder as we think about family worship. We live life together. And that as we live life together, we are living lives that are commending something or someone to those who are around us, and that God has called us to live commendable lives for His glory, but we often wonder, what does that look like? What does a commendable life look like? What is the sort of guiding principle behind all of that? How does the Bible define these things? Well, thankfully, that is where we find ourselves here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that as we think about living our lives commendably, that we will live in such a way that we live persuading others by knowing and being known. And then ultimately our lives, a commendable Christian life is controlled by the love of Christ. So grab your copy of God's Word and read with me, with, read with me if you will, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 11 and down through verse 15. And here is what we read this morning. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are bes beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, teach us this morning. Teach us together as families, united together as one family through faith in Jesus Christ to live commendable lives according to what you have said. Father, in so many nuanced details of our own lives, we commend things in life instead of you. Father, bring about great conviction and Father, bring about great clarity in your grace that we would live in such a way that Christ would be magnified in our midst and that all of us together could fix our eyes on Jesus and say, behold, our God and King, look at what he has done. Father, stir our hearts, stir our attention and our affections here together today for the glory of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. So by the time we get to this section of 2 Corinthians, we've come a long way in thinking about who God is and what He has done. I mean, we can think about all the way in the beginning, think about the grace and peace of the Lord, and we can think of the God of all comfort and the God who raises the dead and the God who is always triumphant and leads us in triumphant procession, the God who is shaping our lives to be ever increasingly more Christ-like, the God who in the midst of even the most hard 
details of life stirs us to great conviction and courage to walk in faithfulness to Christ, to live pleasing to Him in every way, knowing good and well that we are accountable and we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is where we ended last week. And so when we read that little word there, therefore, we know that loaded into that is a lot. That on the basis of the reality of the judgment seat of Christ, knowing good and well that we will give account of our lives before the Lord, he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord matters, doesn't it? Now, we talked about this to some degree when we were in the book of Haggai not too long ago, but it is helpful for us to remember the distinction because there is a difference when we talk about the fear of the Lord between a believer and an unbeliever. For an unbeliever... The fear of the Lord is a servile fear, afraid that He is going to wreck your life, afraid that He is going to remove your ability to serve yourself in the ways in which you want to serve yourself. Whereas for a believer, for someone who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we have what's referred to as a filial fear, a family fear. We see Him as Father. We fear Him in such a way that we don't want to displease Him in any way. We want to draw ever increasingly close to Him. So what we find is the fear of God is paralyzing oftentimes for the unbeliever, but for the believer, it is absolutely motivating. So as we think about our ultimate aim, living a commendable life before God and seeking His approval above all else, the fear of the Lord provides helpful guardrails along the way. Protecting us on the one hand from distorting the gospel and protecting us from the other hand of appeasing people who need the gospel. That our commendable lives are lived on the basis of what we know, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing Him and the glory of who He is. And that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can call God our Father. We live on the basis of what we know as believers. Commendable Christian lives... Persuade others by our knowing and our being known. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. See, lives lived to the glory of Christ are very persuasive, aren't they? We've seen these lives lived out around us. That in many ways, as we just look across our own families, we can see how we are so heavily influenced by what others value supremely. You can see that in the ways in which our affections are tied to the sports teams that our parent, we watched our parents cheer for when we were kids. We can see that in the ways in which we even watched sports and we had coaches who emphasized certain aspects of the sport to such a degree that we find ourselves doing the very same thing. But we can even think in kingdom of Christ terms and we think about missionaries whose lives display the worth and worthiness of Christ, to lay down everything and to go and to reach the unreached with the gospel of Christ. But we can also think of the commendable lives of those fathers and mothers who through self-sacrifice and care have loved us with the gospel and led us to faith in Christ, whether at the foot of our bed or at the kitchen table. Commendable lives lived knowing the fear of the Lord. They are persuasive. Which is why we find ourselves often in life referring back to the things that we've heard before. We'll look at a situation and be like, well, mama said, right? We'll walk into a a scenario and be like, well, my daddy used to always say. We see this on display in our own lives. Because ultimately we recognize 
Our lives are commending something or someone. And that when our legacy is written, when our funeral day comes, what will those around us say we commended to them? When someone has to stand before the crowd of people that are seated around you right now and within 20 minutes summarize your life, what are they going to say? What is it that you commended to those around you? How are you living to persuade others of the worth and worthiness of Jesus? See, commendable lives live on the basis of what we know. But not only that do we know that we are known and what we live by our knowing, but we also live by being known. Notice what he says in the rest of verse 11, but what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. These are helpful defining questions, right? What are you? If somebody just walked up to you and asked you that question, what would you say? You know, we would rattle off the sort of ways in which we define ourselves in all manner of it. What are you? We'd start to think through our career. We'd start to think through our sort of family structure and everything else, what, how we are organized in our own minds. As we look at our kids, we could say, well, what, what do you say I am? Am I a, a believer who's commending Christ to you? What, he's saying what we are is known, known ultimately to God. That our prominence, so many ways in which we define prominence in our own lives is gauged by who we think is paying attention. So we can gauge, we seek to gauge prominence oftentimes in our social media interactions and we'll say, well, that was influential to the degree of how many, you know, fingers got clicked. That's how significant that is. Or maybe you're looking down the list of people who's, oh, look who's paying attention now. We think about this in terms of news. We think of this in terms of sports or even as a kid or as you're growing up and thinking about being recruited. And all, We think about this in work. But as believers, we are not living our lives ultimately to be noticed by others. We recognize we are already known to God and that is enough. We are knowingly living our lives before his omniscience and his omnipresence. He knows your heart. He knows whether or not you're genuine. He knows whether or not you genuinely believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He knows to what degree that's on display in your life. He knows your thoughts. He knows the intentions of your thoughts. He knows your issues. He knows your doubts. He's heard every one of your prayers. He knows every time you have cast your anxiety upon him because you trust that he cares for you. He knows when you have taken the bold approach before the throne of grace, seeking mercy and grace in your time of need. No detail has ever escaped him. So we ought to delight that he knows that we live known to God. That he forgives and he saves and he reconciles and he rewards and he restores and he revives. Whether or not our grandkids or our kids ever know, God knows all those tearful prayers you have cried out before him.
We are known to God, and He knows all of the bad, too. And He still forgives all who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And His love endures forever. What a good God we have. He says, what we are is known to God. Take refuge in the fact of being known to God, of belonging to Him through faith in Christ. And He says, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. That a persuasive life is going to be known to others as well. A life of fearing the Lord, a life aimed to please Christ in all things, knowing good and well that even when you fail, you bring those failures before the throne of grace and he forgives you as you bring it all before him. He knows you in Christ, you are forgiven and you walk assured of his grace. He says, I hope it is known also to your conscience. He's looking at the brothers and he's thinking of the brothers and sisters in Corinth and saying, I hope and pray you have discerned me as genuine before you. See, this is very different from just put on a happy face. This is very different than just playing nicey nice with brothers and sisters in Christ. That there is no distinction or difference between the public persona and the private interaction. That if you aim to be persuasive in the lives of others, you must allow yourself to be known. And we already recognize that the most influential people, that have, the people that, who have had the most profound influence in our own lives are the people that we have known. It's not the people that we're scrolling around trying to garner their attention on the internet. It's the people that we have known, our parents. Our spouses, or friends, or loved ones, those who have walked with us through all the, the trials and the difficulties. And we think of the lives of even those that we share pews with here this morning. That if you want to influence your children and your grandchildren, if you want to influence the next generation for the glory of Christ, let yourself be known to them. Amen. Invest in their lives. Open the door of your life. Open the book of your life. All the struggles and all the weaknesses and all the grace of Christ that sustains you and strengthens you. All the flaws and all the failures and all the redeeming power of Christ's love that he leads us and walks with us into the wonders of his love and his grace and his providence leading us and guiding us through life where we find ourselves in circumstances like, I don't know how we're gonna get through this, kids, but I know our God is faithful. And we know the benefit of knowing lives lived for his glory. Because we can sit here and look around the room and think of widows and widowers who are even now in the midst of grief, who are walking in the faithfulness of Christ, trusting that he really is the God of all comfort and not a moment is wasted of his love. We walk and we witness those who are walking through the hardship and the details of extended illnesses and not knowing what's around the corner and surgeries and sorrows and yet comfort and hope and the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith through impossible circumstances and all the daily challenges and life full of all the intentional moments of small devotion to Christ and we benefit knowing these things so how we ought to live as well before one another. None of us walks in here got it with it all figured out. None of us, walk, I mean, we might put on a, you know, a good persona, but we know good and well we need the grace of Christ. Live like an open book, 
Live knowing the fear of the Lord. Live known to God. And commend yourselves to the conscience of others as you make your life known to them as well. See, a commendable Christian life persuades others by knowing and being known. But even as we think about that, we think, okay, well, what is the sort of guiding principle behind all of that? What's going to get us to live that out? The love of Christ. See, look at what he says. He says in verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He's like, our aim here is not for you guys to review the resume of the Apostle Paul again, right? This isn't a tour through Paul's trophy room. Like, hey, everybody, come and look at all of this. He doesn't want them to see anything more than a display of the living power of the love of Christ in his life. He's like, we're not commending ourselves to you again. We're giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what's in the heart. He's saying our lives are meant to give you cause to boast in Christ. Even the Greek text here, when you get into the word cause or opportunity as it's sometimes translated, the word was used as a military uh, post, forward base, from which you would have strategic advance. And the whole idea is that from there, you can attack the dreariness of the world with joy in Christ. That you can walk forward in confidence and say, look at what our God has done. But it's so easy to get our boasting wrong. He says, you have to have an answer to those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. I mean, this is the Corinthian church. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that there was an outward appearance problem. They were looking for somebody to show out all the time. For somebody to have power and prominence, to stand behind the pulpit and everybody can say, look at him, isn't he wonderful? And Paul's like, no, we're looking to Christ. This isn't about me or you. This is about Christ. We're not showing out to show off. This is not a performance. We are not aiming for style over substance. But how often that takes root in the church. Shine it up a little bit and miss the point. Boasting of what things look like instead of what they really are. We must have an answer to those who boast about outward appearance only and not about what is in the heart. And when he uses the word heart, again, it's in reference to the totality of the emotions, the mind, and the will. Gripped by grace, controlled by love. The ways in which we think and process, the ways in which we make decisions, the ways in which we respond and react. All consumed by and led by and controlled by the love of Christ. Because it's an acknowledgement that anyone can put on a good show. I mean, you can go to the car lot. You can walk up to a car and be like, man, this is a nice car. It can be all waxed and shined and looking good and everything else. And then you, like a wise consumer you are, you get the Carfax. And you realize this thing is a mess. 
this thing's been totaled and sort of hacked together, and you, maybe you stick your head under the car and you're like, oh, I'm not even sure this rattle trap will move. It's easy to make things look nice on the outside. It's a different matter when we take a look under the hood. What about our own lives? Especially now, in the days where we live so much by the attention of others who are not even in the same room with us. How much more so do we need to be careful about boasting of outward appearance instead of what's in the heart? The knowledge of the love of Christ compelling you and leading you and controlling you even to live with affection for Jesus. See, commendable lives before God are not showpieces. They're genuine lives controlled by the love of Christ. And that the love of Christ controls our boasting and the love of Christ controls our responses to others. Which is why he says, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. And if we are in our right mind, it's for you. He's like, you want us to show out. He's like, no, no, no. When we show out, it's for God. It's not for you. It's those pertinent points of self-control and and pointed, patient teaching that's for you. He's like, if we're beside ourselves, if, if there's moments where it looks like mental imbalance or where some people will look at somebody living for the glory of Christ and be like, are you nuts? You're gonna sell everything that you have and move to the 1040 window to reach people who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? It'll look crazy. He's like, no, 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 no. Those things are not for you. Those things are for God. Those things are for Jesus. And that following him oftentimes can look crazy, but that's not so that we can have other people saying, this guy's a Jesus freak and he's just nuts. No, this is an act of worship for the Lord Jesus Christ. Following him and saying, I will endure hardship for his glory. I will be hopeful amid all of that is hopeless for his glory. I will rejoice in affliction because he told me I ought to, to leap for joy when people hate you because he told me I should. Every cost, every sacrifice, identifying with the cross of Christ is an act of worship. The grace of God and Jesus Christ at work with us. That we forgive because we've been forgiven. We don't wait for somebody to earn forgiveness. We forgive them as God in Christ has forgiven us. He didn't wait for us to be deserving. That looks crazy to people on the outside, but that's not for people to look at us. That's for Christ. That's the love of Christ controlling our hearts. But he says, if we're in our right mind, that's for you. We're not out for attention. We're out for clarity of truth. The diligent display of care and mercy in your life. Truth patiently and lovingly explained encouragement to those who are hurting and in crisis, correcting those who need correction with love and with grace. This is not a show. We live before Christ. This is about Him. And so we get to what controls all of this. 
if we're talking about what's controlling our boasting, we're talking about what's controlling our uh, responses to others, he gets to the crux of the matter there in verse 14. What is it that is this guiding principle behind it all? He says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The love of Christ. And that God in His grace and in His wisdom has clearly defined His love for us in the person and in the work of Jesus. We don't follow these ridiculous definitions of love is love is love is love is love. That's nonsense. Love in its ultimate expression is Jesus who died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead. The sacrificial substitution of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for us on the cross. We deserved the wrath of God. We still deserve it. And yet God, in love, sent his only son. And that God has demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us when we were absolutely unlovable. He knew the horror and the stench of our own sin and had every reason to cast us off, and yet he sought us out. He took our condemnation off of our backs, carried our crosses, forsaken in our place, punished in our place, declared it is finished, laid down his life, and three days later took it up again. Because he first loved us, we love him. He sought us. He displayed it. He declared it. And here we are. The love of Christ controls us so that we look around in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in family worship, in the church, in our friendships, amongst our neighbors. And the love of Christ controls us, holds us together. We love like he loves us, and we love for him. His love is the source of our salvation, and it becomes the source of our motivation as well. Which leads us to a question here. What's controlling your life? What's the guiding principle of why you're making the decisions that you're making even today? Is it the love of Christ? Love him, adore him, worship him. And that love that he has placed in our hearts overflows into the lives of others as well because we've concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. There is salvation in no one else and there's no other name under heaven given among men by which man must be saved. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. His death is sufficient for salvation. No matter who you are, no matter how deep the darkness may be in your life, no matter how proud and self-righteous you may be, no matter how far flung you may think yourself to be, the love of Christ is sufficient to save you. No matter who you are, what the backstory of your life may be. He says, we've concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died. And see, what's interesting here is when you look at this within the Greek text, there's a causal relationship between the death of Christ and, and all have died. All have died as a result of he died for all. He has accomplished our salvation. It's not simply that he accomplished the possibility of our salvation. He is our salvation. 
He has done it. It is complete. So even while we read this, we recognize that not all will be saved, but all who come to him in faith, who turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for their sin and rose from the dead, anyone who believes that is saved. Anyone who can say, along with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That we, can be per- we can be certain that every person who comes to Jesus in faith will have the all-sufficient, loving Savior receive them. There is enough love here for you as well to save, to redeem, to reconcile, and to sustain. And that as we receive the immensity of his love, it reshapes our lives as commendable in his sight. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, it's specifically tied to his accomplishment of our salvation. That our lives are no longer lived for ourselves. Yes, there's atonement for sin. Yes, there's forgiveness of sin. Yes, there's assurance of everlasting life. And yes, there's more. The love of Christ liberates us from the tyranny of living for ourselves. We are no longer our own commercial. We have a much better purpose. We have a much better motivation. We have a much better reason. We have a much better Lord. We've been liberated. So that we're not out to live as in self-promotion to exalt ourselves. To, we know as we look at our families, as we look at our children and grandchildren and parents and grandparents, and we look and we see, I know he who you need more than you need me. He who for our sake died and was raised. Because we can look around and we can look up and down the pews and we can see lives transformed by the grace of Christ. I thank God for the legacy of believing parents. I think back of my dad and some of the things that he walked through as a young man and the wonder of God's redeeming love and saving him and sustaining him. And I look forward into my children and I can see how God in his grace has already transformed some of my children's lives. It's amazing. The love of Christ is amazing. And so as as we recognize his love and we are controlled by his love, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. Brothers and sisters, we are under new management. With new aims, new motivations, new understanding of a commendable life. We are not out to manage our own brand. We live for Jesus because he loves us. And we love him because he first loved us. And so we read his word not to get some sort of legalistic understanding or to feel like we can check off of a box, but because we want to know him. We want to see and know him who even though we were so deserving of condemnation, he in his grace has saved us. So we want to bring our needs before him in prayer. We want to support all of what he supports. We want to worship him in spirit and truth every opportunity we have. 
so that in all the details of life, why should I love my wife? Why should a wife submit to her husband? Because of Jesus. Why should I care for my children the way in which God has called me to? Because of Jesus. Why be merciful and compassionate? Because of Jesus. Why weep with those who weep? Because of Jesus. Why love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who mistreat you? Because of Jesus. Why bother sowing the seed of the gospel in the midst of a culture where everybody says it's fallen apart, it's fallen apart, it's fallen apart. No, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and the gospel is still the power of God to salvation. That's true now, that'll be true tomorrow and that'll be true as long as Jesus tarries. So look at your children and grandchildren. Tell them of Christ and of his love. Let the love of Christ control us and compel us. Because for our sake he died and was raised. Never get over the gospel. Remember unlovable you. Remember your own sin and your own sin nature. Remember that you are deserving of wrath, that in your unconverted life you are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. You and I, we all deserve hell. But God in his grace and in his love sent his only son who died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead, that all who repent and believe have forgiveness and everlasting life in him. He lived in perfect righteousness. He died on the cross. He took our curse. He took our condemnation. He took the justice that was demanded for our punishment. He died and rose again. And in victory, he lives. Our Lord, unconquerable king. And in him, we have hope. And if your life is not changed by his love, you don't believe it. If your life is not different, having received the love of Christ in your life, you receive something else. Look at how good our God is. That even if you receive somebody else's mail at a different time in your life, oh, the love of Christ beckons us still. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Don't look at somebody else and say, they sure do need this. Before you say that, you better say, Lord, I need you. Repent, turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Trust that he died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead, that every seeking sinner will find a savior. Trust in him and live a commendable life, persuading others, controlled by the love of Christ, because Christ first loved you. However you need to respond, run to Jesus. Let us do so together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Christ. God, in this moment now, we all recognize our own unworthiness before you. None of us deserve to know you. Renew us again. And the love that we have so overlooked so often in our lives. Remind us of the great demonstration of your love for us that Christ died on the cross for our sin. Christ rose again. 
And there's forgiveness and everlasting life in Him. So, Father, for the person who is here, who walked in the door, who's never known anything of your love, Father, open their eyes, open their heart. May they trust in Christ together with us today. Father, for all of us in here who know you, revive us again in the depth and the wonder of your love for us. That by your Spirit and for your glory, you would not only remind us of your great love, but that you would send us out to live commendable lives, persuading others of your great love and your great grace. God, help us together as a family today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.